you for joining me for another episode of Nina's Digest. My name is Nina Duschel, and as I sit here today in my bedroom in Miami on Monday, June, July 25th, I am officially done with my dietetic internship and waiting for an email from the Commission of Dietetic Registration to tell me that I'm finally eligible to take my RD exam. So we finished our internship on Friday and yeah, it is a really weird feeling. I've been talking with some of my co-interns about how we truly never felt like this would ever come. So it's kind of hitting us all of a sudden, like we very soon will need to be focused on passing this exam that it seems like everybody fails at least once. So I'm not really looking forward to that. But at the same time, I just cannot wait to get it out of the way and put that behind me. The last test that I'll probably hopefully ever take. So yes, very soon I will be leaving Miami, which makes me incredibly sad. I'm heading to Tampa where I'll be studying for my exam, staying with my family before I get my first job as a dietitian to be decided where that is, hoping for New Orleans. But where we left off last week with the eating instinct, Virginia had been discussing the eating instincts that we're born with and how those interact and shift as we're exposed to ideas of parents and friends and strangers and the media and health professionals even related to how we should eat. So in chapter two, which she titles Chasing Clean, she gets into the alternative food movement and a bit about the dietetics world too, which I found to be super interesting. So First of all, this movement, we can kind of think about it as going back to maybe like the mid 2000s to around like, you know, 2008, 2010. It has a couple of other names. It sometimes is talked about as the eco food movement or the eco gastronomy movement, but I always thought of it as the alternative food movement. Made me think of things like the documentary Food Inc. and Michael Pollan in his books. And of course, how could I forget about Supersize Me? Sort of this cultural shift where we, you know, for better or for worse, we stop looking so much at individual health and individual responsibility. And we start to shift the focus and place it on things like industry and agriculture and farming practices. And so this kind of this sounds pretty great in a lot of ways, right? You can think like, okay, good. We're, we're taking the focus off of individual responsibility for pursuing health. And we're acknowledging that there are some forces outside of the individual's control that might be impacting their health. But then as with everything, it seems, nutrition-related, we take it a bit too far and we start categorizing certain foods as clean and others as not clean, or I guess, you know, the opposite of clean would be dirty. And we develop this sort of fixation on whole foods and what are processed foods, what is a real food, what is a fake food, what is manufactured. And 
So Virginia says that she started to really embrace this movement because on the surface, it wasn't so much about calorie counting or crash diets. Um, It's, you know, under this way of thinking, the alternative food movement, it's okay to eat a cookie as long as it's, you know, made with fair trade chocolate and local butter and you know the farmer who gave you the eggs and you know that those chickens had a really good life. And eventually this movement began to sort of co-opt and embrace the quote unquote war on obesity. And that's where this real focus starts to come in on categorizing foods as whole and clean and real versus processed and fake and dirty. And then obviously we have the fear that comes along with those categorizations. And this is really a trend that has now gone so mainstream people it's it's so not uncommon to hear about somebody who is abstaining from eating refined sugar or just they've decided that they are not going to eat gluten which i don't really i'm not sure if i if we can relate this to no i think it does relate to the alternative food movement because the alternative food movement has started looking at things like farming practices and when you know we have people who are choosing to not eat gluten for what I would describe as unnecessary reasons a lot of that comes down to our farming practices and what is put on crops that contain gluten Virginia wrote that even her 88-year-old grandmother was suddenly aware of what gluten was and why certain members of her family were not eating it. And this is what the cultural shift around food in the mid to late 2000s did to us. Everyone was watching documentaries like Super Size Me and Food Inc., which unsurprisingly was narrated by Michael Pollan. And I appreciate in some ways what these documentaries and this movement as a whole was doing, but then they also really oversimplify health and place all of the importance on food as if, you know, we could just live in perfect health and happiness if we were to just have a farmer's market down the street that would sell us affordable organic produce. And so it comes as no surprise, once again, that the people leading this conversation are all cis straight white men who honestly, maybe that is their truth. Maybe the one barrier, that, or at least the one perceived barrier that they have to attaining health is access to better food. But for a lot of people, that wouldn't solve all of their problems. And there are a lot of bigger issues and barriers that are in place preventing people from reaching quote-unquote optimal health. But yet this idea persists that quote you are what you eat unquote and quote food is medicine unquote. The idea that there is no problem that can't be solved or improved by just changing your diet. So Virginia writes about how you know at the core of this movement were sort of organic farmers and food activists that originally got together to try to take on huge corporations within the agricultural industrial complex. But then their arguments started getting infused with these messages about health that have led to the rise of another complex, which is the wellness industrial complex. And this has now begun to include dietitians and nutritionists 
personal trainers, cookbook authors, and anyone who deems themselves any kind of health expert. And what I found to be so interesting about this that Virginia points out is that now these people whose careers have been born of the alternative food movement are no longer, you know, fighting against these evil corporations as they were um, sort of deemed like Walmart or Amazon. They're now hoping that those corporations will stock their products that they've started to sell. So next, another big theme in this chapter was about the ways in which the alternative food movement and its ideas have started to make its way into the dietetics curriculum, which, you know, that fact alone has its obvious issues. This chapter includes a mention of Christy Harrison, whose work I really love, and she was really the first person to expose me to intuitive eating and health at every size. Her, her podcast is Amazing Food Psych. I think it's in its last season right now. And her book, Anti-Diet, was very important to me throughout my dietetics program. So she recalls her experience in her dietetics program during which they were required to take each other's body measurements, use calipers to measure body fat, all of these things that actually are also listed as being eating disorder behaviors. So much so that at the core of all you know, any eating disorder recovery program is or should be to get rid of scales and any tools used to measure your body. And yet at the same time, these things are core parts of the dietetics curriculum. It's a curriculum that continues to insist that body weight is an important tool for assessing overall physical health. So Christy, when she was in her program, ended up comparing her measurements to the quote-unquote ideal body weight for someone of her height and stature. And I'd like to point out that Christy is, you know, she's a thin, straight-sized woman, so she she definitely has thin privilege in this setting and in any setting. And she found out that she was more than a few pounds over that limit that was listed in her textbook. And at that point, she realized that the only time that she actually fell into the normal weight category was when she was engaging in some seriously disordered eating behaviors, and it was during the most intense restriction period of her eating disorder. And that's someone with a tremendous amount of thin privilege to begin with. So she points out, how does this feel for people who move through the world experiencing fat phobia, experiencing, you know treatment that they're getting because of their body size and these people that fall even further outside of the curve. How does that feel for anyone in healthcare who's reading about these weight cutoffs and for patients who are maybe shown a weight chart or anything, you know, that's made to let them know that their body size is wrong. (laughs) Another dietetic student is quoted in the book as falsifying her 24-hour food recall in school. So 24-hour food recalls are a tool that dietitians use to sort of just, it's one tool that we can use to gather information about a patient's diet. So basically what we might do is, let's say you've got a patient who comes to the hospital, you see them in the morning and they, they were just admitted. So you want to get a handle on what they typically eat. You might walk them through their day 
previously and ask, what was the first thing thing that you ate when you woke up? And you walk them through their whole day so that you get an idea of what they ate and how much of it that they ate. And so this student is practicing in class with a 24-hour diet recall, and she's falsifying her information because she knows that there is a quote-unquote right way to eat and a wrong way to eat. And as a future dietitian, she felt that she couldn't be honest about what she was putting in her food recall. And that just got me thinking, if a student who is writing their 24-hour food recall feels that they need to falsify their food intake just for the sake of this class, I cannot imagine how it feels to be a patient sitting across from a dietitian who has been asked to tell this nutrition professional what they've been eating. And, you know, that's nobody's fault but our own. We, oh my gosh, I almost just knocked over my coffee. We have so much work to do when it comes to improving patient care, quality of patient care by, you know, truly looking at the evidence, truly considering what which of our interventions actually is helping people and surely you know stigmatizing foods food intake weight body size we we've we know and we've known this for a long time that that is not helping people but unfortunately that's the approach that a lot of nutrition professionals take and until that changes our patients are going to lie to us just like this girl lied in her (laughs) dietetics class when she was told to practice doing a 24-hour food recall. But in order to address that problem, we first need to think about why do we place such a focus on body size and weight? And I think it really, I mean, it comes down to the fact that it's not so much a part of our training to learn very much about eating disorders, which what? Um, (laughs) We're supposed to be the authorities on food and diet, and we probably get, you know, anorexia and bulimia education over the course of part of a day. It might be covered quickly as part of a larger chapter in like an MNT, a medical nutrition therapy class. And the vast majority of the rest of our education is with a focus on calories and weight and how to people, how to help people put less food in their bodies so that they can take up less space in the world. Um, topics like renal failure, end stage liver disease, and calculating tube feeds get you know another big portion of our attention and di- the dietetics curriculum. And this is like a real dichotomy, I feel, because we have these really important evidence-based interventions for these chronic conditions like CKD and liver disease. Everything is it's optimized for acute care settings. There's less of a focus that's placed on the issues that people are actually grappling with on a day-to-day basis outside of the context of chronic disease, like disordered eating, general eating problems, negative thoughts around food and body. then when it comes to these people who don't technically have a chronic condition and who are maybe just struggling with their relationship with food, we turn suddenly to the non-evidence-based recommendation of here's a diet or shrink your body or, well, you could probably lose five pounds and here's how you could do it. 
And what I thought was really interesting too about this chapter is the discussion of how nutrition and our our understanding of nutrition as dietitians has really started to merge more with the alternative food movement. So while before maybe there was a focus on, you know, portion sizes on saying, okay, um, I'm a dietitian and I'm going to teach you how you can look at a piece of chicken. And if it's the size of a deck of cards, then it's probably a good serving size for you. And then the focus shifted to don't worry too much about portion size. Think about where your chicken is coming from. You don't need, you just need to obsess over whether or not your food is clean. You don't need to worry about portion size essentially is what happened. We started to merge more with this alternative food movement and sort of put out this message that as long as you're eating the right foods, like sustainably sourced nuts and raw cashew cheese, then you don't need to worry about portion size. So over time, these two camps have started sort of meeting each other in the middle. And Virginia even noticed that spokespeople for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics started slowly moving away from discussing portion sizes and towards topics like the merits of organic nuts. And with all of this comes with the discussion of inflammatory and anti-inflammatory foods. And this research is completely in its infancy. We've got medical professionals like Woodson Merrill, who wrote the detox prescription, citing studies that were performed in Petri dishes using isolated nutrients. And that's how you know that we've got a problem. Or maybe we've got people citing, you know, studies that have been performed on rats. So, excuse me. There are real limits to this experimental data that's out there trying to isolate, you know, the benefits of certain foods or of certain nutrients. And we've got all these things that lack official medical definitions too, like sensitivity, a food sensitivity, a detox, cleanse, elimination diet, clean. These are all marketing words that anyone can use no matter what they're selling, whether you're a nutrition or medical professional or you're a health coach. Huge air quotes around that term. So next I'd like to read this passage that Virginia wrote that I think captures exactly how I feel about all of this so well. She writes, we are now so certain that every aspect of our health can be improved through diet. We can only blame ourselves when those diets fail. When cutting out gluten doesn't work, we move on to dairy, then soy. When we still don't feel better, we start reading about the evils of nightshade vegetables or peanuts. Still feel bloated or tired or lacking in energy, all impossible to quantify symptoms that may just reflect the unavoidable state of being mortal and not part superhero. Probably it's because you weren't careful enough about all that gluten. Nutrition has become a permanently unsolvable Rubik's Cube. So we read more books, pin more blog posts, buy more products, and sign up for more classes and consultations. And we don't realize how many of the so-called experts guiding us through this new and constantly changing landscape are exactly where Christie once was, fighting their own battles with food. There really has been this huge shift, and I think we could probably trace it back to the, you know, partially to the alternative food movement, where we've got this, this real laser focus on digestive symptoms, 
bloat, gut health, anything that's perceived as irregular that actually is really ordinary and just a function of the fact that you're in a human body that, you know, makes noises and is working to keep you alive. And a big thing that's cropped up in, I don't know, probably the last 10 years has been people paying for these really expensive food sensitivity tests that are intended to get to the bottom of things like bloat or headaches that are for whatever reason attributed to diet. But what we know is that stress and other psychological inputs can influence digestive function just as much as what you're eating. But, you know, when it comes to health and wellness, that idea doesn't exactly sell as easily as saying, oh, just take all of these foods out of your diet, buy my powder or whatever it is, and you'll be good to go. And Virginia cites a study that it it was a survey of 185 Australian patients who were in eating disorder treatment. And what this survey really shows is that people who have engaged in extreme dieting behaviors are more likely than others. Well, this, this study doesn't prove that they're more likely than others, but it proves that they are very prone to experiencing digestive distress and all symptoms that are associated with that. So 23% of patients reported that they had acid reflux, 27% reported that they experienced constipation, and 42% of these patients reported that they suffered from irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. And this really is no surprise because things like restriction and erratic eating habits are big contributors to things like acid reflux, constipation, and irritable bowel syndrome. Research has shown that long-term people with eating disorders frequently have persistent GI issues. So Virginia, the way that she puts this is that we're dieting ourselves into more health problems, which many medical professionals would end up wanting to treat by recommending another type of diet, which is a problem. So to close out this episode, I'd like to talk about the brilliant way that Virginia realized that healthcare professionals are looking to people who exhibit eating disorder behaviors as almost a roadmap to figuring out how to help other people shrink their bodies. So sounds messed up, right? Well, it is. She says, consider the title of a piece written by Columbia University psychiatrists published in the May 2016 International Journal of Eating Disorders. So the title of this article is Long-Term Weight Loss Maintenance in Obesity, Possible Insights from Anorexia Nervosa? Question mark. It's like, oh, are you kidding me? So it's an analysis of the remarkable parallels, they call them, between behavioral patterns of people with anorexia and the very, very small percentage of people who do successfully lose weight and keep it off over a longer period of time. So, you know, that being like five to seven years. And this was tracked by the National Weight Control Registry. They noted that both of these groups, both the people with severe eating disorders and people who have dieted and kept weight off successfully for longer than five years, have restricted their food intake for several years 
they have lower than normal resting metabolisms and higher levels of ghrelin, which is a hormone that signals hunger, than the control group. And yet they're somehow able to override all of these mechanisms that we have to, you know, that our bodies really have to keep us at a certain weight to maintain their weight loss. So instead of asking whether this means, you know, instead of looking at those people who have all these shared characteristics with people that have diagnosed eating disorders and saying, maybe these people have eating disorders too. The takeaway that these researchers had was, oh, maybe this is some maybe this is some fertile ground for future study. Maybe we could look at what these people have done and apply that to our patients who are trying to lose weight. And the journal published the, this piece under this heading, an idea worth researching. So uh, it's so troubling because I think a lot of times the ways in which our medical system is fat phobic is more veiled, but a study like this really, you know, I think we're giving ourselves away here. We're showing our cards and we're saying that above all, becoming smaller is the goal. It's important and it's something that we should be striving for whether that means compromising our relationship with food, whether that means engaging in some really disordered behaviors that could follow us and impact us for the rest of our lives. That'll take up brain space, take our energy away from, you know, the things that we're really supposed to be dedicating our energy to in life. Um, And this to me, it's, it's really pointing to this idea that some people have been pointing to for a very long time that we need to start considering what do these recommendations, what do these interventions do to someone's mental health or to their quality of life? And this isn't to say that something like a specialized diet or an elimination diet doesn't have a place in nutrition therapy, but what it does mean is why is it not standard practice to screen folks for disordered eating tendencies before casually suggesting some sort of weight loss or casually suggesting some sort of elimination diet? Because at the end of the day, what is it that we're all looking for, especially when it comes to focusing on nutrition? We're really looking for just a way to feed ourselves that makes sense and that feels good a way that feels simple, that does not instill guilt, and that allows for a certain amount of trust in ourselves, the way that we ate as babies, intuitively. And Virginia points out that people in the wellness space are looking for this exact same thing, but in the meantime, they are more than happy to sell us their latest plan. So that's chapter two of The Eating Instinct. Thank you guys for being here and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.